So today we have the story of Samson and of the stories in Judges, probably the most well-known. And if there was a movie, you know, with the poster, Samson would be the guy, the main character. In, in fact, I'm probably sure that several exist, right, of a bare-chested Samson. Uh, and yet, despite how we romanticize the story of Samson, the true condition of Samson, of Israel, as we've made our way through the book of Judges, is one of a steady decline. It's not a feel-good story. The Israelites are ever more prone to fall into idolatry, into sin, to stray from God. To the point of last week that we saw that they've even shed the blood of their own countrymen. And so in Judges 13, verse 1, it says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now this story of Samson is this contemporary to the story of Jephthah that we had. And Jephthah was in, on the other side of the country. This story of Samson in the southwest of the country. And the rise of the Philistines, perhaps they were emboldened by what had gone on, by Israel being weakened by that infighting, and they rose up. And the Philistines were a foreign people, they weren't Canaanites. They had come from the sea. They were a seafaring people and settled along the coast of Israel. It says the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines. But beyond that, listen to the words of the prophet Amos. In his book 9-7, God is speaking. And he said, Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor? God purposed that they should be here for this time as an instrument. God uses the Philistines. God can use anybody. We've heard that a lot. The story of Samson can basically be divided up into three distinct time periods. We have the story of his birth, then his 
battle with the Philistines, and finally his capture and death. And there's lessons that we can glean from each of those distinct periods, starting with his birth as we read on. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now the Nazarite vow, you find back in Numbers 6. And it basically had three parts. Don't drink any wine or strong drink. Don't eat anything of the fruit of the vine, grapes. That was one. Don't touch any dead bodies. Don't be unclean. And three, don't cut your hair. And it was a vow to separate yourself to the service of the Lord. God had separated the nation of Israel to himself. Among the nation of Israel, he separated the Levites to be his priests. But he makes this available, this vow of separation, to anyone else who chooses to be separate to the Lord. It was very similar to the restrictions that the head priest had to observe. No, no wine, no strong drink. Can't be unclean. Touch, come into contact with no dead bodies. Now, the shortest length for a Nazarite vow was 30 days. But as we see here, for Samson, it was a lifetime vow. It says, then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. It was a lifetime commitment for Samson. It started even before he was born with his mother. And I want you to catch the faith of his father, Manoah, in his response. It says, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. There was no hint of doubt in Manoah. You've got to be kidding. We haven't had any children. That never crossed his mind, at least what we see. He was a faithful man, and he prayed to God. And what happens? Manoah's prayer is answered virtually immediately. And 
these instances in the Bible where the will of God, where, where the prayer of man aligns perfectly with the will of God, and that prayer is answered immediately, are, they're just really special. They're a delight. I mean, I, I, it's, to me, this is the same as Elijah on Mount Sinai. On Mount Carmel, pardon me. And, and praying to God, you know, answer my prayer, O Lord, that the people would know that you are, are, the, are God. And immediately fire comes down. This is the same thing. Pray to God, answered immediately. And God, the angel of the Lord, shows up again to his wife, not to Manoah, but to his wife, as he originally had before. And I get this, this image of Manoah and his wife as this little Jewish couple. And the angel of God appears to her and, hang on, let me go get my husband. Manoah, the angel's back. And Manoah, they hustle on over there, and, and Manoah says, it says, And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man that spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, and catch this again. I mean, just the faithfulness of Manoah. Now when your words come true, what is to be his manner of life and what is to be his calling, his mission? And the angel says, exactly what I told your wife before. He's to be a Nazarite, and he will begin to save the people of Israel. And so Manoah says to the angel, stick around, let me prepare a young goat for you, and the angel says, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you wish to prepare an offering, offer it to the Lord. And it says, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that your, when, we, when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful or secret, or too awesome for you to comprehend, to speak in words. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now, we've got a little doctrine here. This appearance, this angel of the Lord, um, what we refer to as a theophany or a Christophany, is 
the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And we know this because the offering is accepted by him, okay? So angels, if this was just an angel, a created being, not God, uh, angels do not accept sacrifice. They do not accept worship. In the book of Revelation, when the angel is showing John the vision, it is so awesome that twice John falls at the feet of the angel and begins to worship. And the angel says, do not do that. I am a servant just like you. Worship God. Angels do not accept worship and sacrifice. In the same way, believers should not accept worship and sacrifice. We have the example of uh, Paul and Barnabas. And they're preaching and, and Paul commands a man that has been crippled from birth, get up. And he gets up. The Lord heals him. And the people began to begin to worship Paul and Barnabas. And they begin to, to prepare sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And they say, why are you doing this? Stop. Worship God. And so in this story, the angel of the Lord accepts the sacrifice. This is Christ manifested in the appearance of a man before Manoah and his wife. And so I ask the question, do we have the same reaction when we see the world worshiping something other than God? Or even further, are we able to recognize that in ourselves? Or are we numb to it? Are we still sensitive enough to see it for the vile thing that it is? That idolatry. How do we get that back if we've lost it? Well, look at the reaction of Manoah when he realizes what he's seen, who he's in the presence of. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of, of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we, sh we shall surely die, for we have seen God. And you have these examples in Scripture of Abraham, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, Daniel, John, these guys that catch a glimpse 
of the glory of God. And they all have the same reaction. They fall flat on their face. And they say, now we're going to die. These men that we place as paragons of obedience and faithfulness in the presence of God understand that they're way down here. There is no pretense. There is no pride or misunderstanding of our place in the presence of God. And so for us, in that process, that day-by-day process, as we draw near to God, that's how our priorities align correctly. That's how we get a right view. That's how we come back to that sensitivity. It softens our heart as we get closer to God. We become sensitive to the stuff that offends God as we get closer to him. In verse 23, his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. Thank God Manoah had his wife. And so Samson grows up. He becomes a young man after some period of years. And as he's traveling, he sees a a young lady. She catches his eye. And Samson's eyes are going to give him a lot of trouble. And so he says to his father, get her for me. You know, these are the days of the parents have to work out the marriage. The parents, the father of Samson would have to pay the dowry before this marriage can happen to her folks. And so Samson says, get her for me. The only problem is that she is a Philistine. She worships other gods. She is an unequal, this marriage would be an unequal yoke. And his father and mother respond, 
can't you find a wife among all of our people? Any of our kinsmen? Do you have to marry this uncircumcised woman? And Samson says, she is right in my eyes. And I wondered if growing up, you know, it doesn't say that Samson had brothers and sisters. Okay, and we, if you remember those, have you seen those skits, like the, those humorous things they do where, um, you know, like Jesus as a, chi- as a young, as a child growing up and, and what it must have been like for his folks. Find something's broken. Who did that? Well, we know it wasn't Jesus. You know, so I wonder, you kind of get that same thing from Samson growing up, you know, if, if he had siblings. Quit arguing with your brother. Don't you know he's the savior of our nation? And so I wonder if, if growing up, if that, you are the chosen one, if that developed a sense of pride in Samson that poisoned his character. But we can begin to see the flaws in his character now. He's still under the Nazarite vow. He's still separate to God. And God chose Samson, flaws and all, to begin to deliver his people. And so chapter 14, verse 5. And here begins the exploits of Samson, his fame. He's traveling through the country with his folks uh, to go finalize these arrangements, this marriage. And a young lion rushes at him and says, The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson and he tears the lion apart, just like a lion would tear a young goat. And he kills it with his bare hands. He goes on. He meets with the the lady. Decides that we're going to go through with this marriage. And after some time, this betrothal period, which could have been a significant amount of time, he's traveling through the same countryside again to go to the, the wedding. And this desiccated carcass of the lion, he turns aside to see what has become of it. And bees have formed a hive in it. And he reaches in and takes out the honey. And now remember, Samson is not supposed to touch any dead object, any dead person or dead thing. And he reaches in and takes the honey and he eats it. And he shares some with his parents, but doesn't tell them where he got it. 
You know, you can tell that Samson knew what he did was wrong. And he goes on and, and to the wedding feast, and it says that when they see him, Samson doesn't bring anybody with him, it's just him and his folks. When they see him, they get 30 men. I don't know if his appearance was that intimidating, but 30 Philistine men are at this wedding. And so Samson, in, in his arrogance and pride, proposes this riddle at this wedding feast. He says, if you can answer my riddle, then I will owe you 30 garments. If you can't, you owe me 30 garments. And his riddle is, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong something sweet. It's a reference to the honey out of the lion. And they can't find the answer, and they can't find the answer, of course. And so they, they threaten his bride-to-be. And they say, if you don't find the answer for us, pry the answer out of him. We'll burn you and we'll burn your father in his house. And so she weeps before Samson. Oh, you don't love me. You won't tell me the answer. Until finally, it wears him down enough that he says, it's honey out of the lion. And then that evening, they answer the riddle. And Samson is so angry and goes into such a rage that he goes down to the next village and kills 30 men and steals their clothes and goes back and says, here. And he's so put out that he just leaves and goes home. And so after a time when he's cooled down, he goes back to his wife and her father says, well, I thought you were gone. I thought you had left. We married her to your best man, that Philistine guy that we found. And you thought he was mad before. He says, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Vengeance is what Samson wants. And it says, so he captures 300 foxes and he ties them tail to tail and puts a torch between their legs. And it's time of the, of the harvest and he lets them run through these dry grain fields and it lights them up and destroys the harvest of the Philistines. And so in retaliation, they say, who has done this? Samson. And so they go up against the Israelites. And the Israelites say, why are you attacking us? Because of what Samson has done. And so the Israelites gather 3,000 men. Now catch the irony here. They can assemble a group of troops to go capture Samson, but they won't fight against the Philistines. And 3,000 men go to, camp, to Samson hiding in, in a cave and they say, if we don't bring you to them, 
they're going to, they'll kill us all. And so Samson says, okay, I'll go with you. Just promise me that you won't kill me. And so they bind him and deliver him to the Philistines. And it says, when the Philistines come rushing at him in this glee of, we've captured our foe, the Spirit of the Lord again comes upon Samson and he shreds his bonds and he picks up the jawbone of a donkey. And there he slays a thousand men. And after this awesome task is done, it says in verse 18, and he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall, not, shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? I get this sense of entitlement from Samson. You see what I have done? You owe me something. And that's human nature. That can be our nature. When we serve long serving or through a difficult task, when we accomplish something, well, aren't I owed something? God does not owe. God paid what we owe. And yet God responds to Samson. He brings water forth out of the rock. He revives him. And it says, Samson judged Israel for 20 years. The last part of his tale is his downfall, his capture and his death. It's his relationship with Delilah. And she was promised money by the Philistines to betray Samson, betray his secret, the secret of his strength. And I don't know, it seems like Samson is a fool. And he's, he's just playing games. And she, she asked him, tell me the secret of your strength, and, well, if you tie me with seven bowstrings, I will be as any other man. So you'd think after the first time that she tied him up with seven bowstrings and said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He'd be a little more cautious. But he goes through 
these tell me what your secret is. Well, tie me with ropes that have never been used. And he tears the ropes. Weave my hair into the loom. And he gets up and tears it out of his hair. Until finally, as the Philistine wife had, Delilah wears him down, grinds him down. Don't you love me? And Samson tells him, tells her of his Nazarite vow. And if he shaves his head, then the strength of God will flee from him. And in verse 20 of chapter 16, after she had shorn his head, it says, And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, think of it like, like this. God had raised Samson up. He had reached down. He had chosen Samson and raised him up. And over the course of Samson's life, Samson was the one that quite literally severed that connection between God and himself until the last straw, the last strand he cut that hair, that vow, that thing that separated him, and he fell back down. The Lord left Samson because Samson left the Lord. We'll come back to that. So he's captured. His strength leaves him. He's captured. And what do they do? They gouge out his eyes to subdue this mighty warrior. The thing that had led to Samson's downfall, the thing that he couldn't overcome, his sinfulness, was the way in which they punished him. And they imprison him, lock him in shackles, and make him serve as a slave, grinding at the mill. And it says that he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And it's, again, ironic that in prison and in servitude, chained and blind, that Samson was set free from his sin. 
That's what it took. And it says the hair began to grow again. And there's nothing special about his, his hair. It's not like a, it doesn't have magical properties. But it's a symbol of his dedication to God. And so as his hair begins to grow back, he is growing in his faithfulness to God. And we get this, the end story, the story of his death. They have him as prisoner. They're worshiping at a temple to Dagon, their god. And they, they bring Samson out, entertain us. And they mock him and humiliate him. And of course, you know the story, Samson gets between the two central pillars of this structure and prays to God that he would give him the strength one last time to avenge his, the loss of his eyes on his enemies. And God does. And he pushes the pillars down and the temple falls down. It says 3,000 men and women died in the collapse of that structure. More people than he had killed over the course of his life. A tragic end for God's chosen leader. And we can see that Samson's life is a parallel to the nation of Israel. As they obeyed, they were strong, improbably strong. We see the victories that they had and the victories that Samson had. But when they disobeyed, when they fell away, they were weak and they were brought low. And in Samson's life, and in regards to the nation of Israel, and in regards to our life, God forgives, but sin has consequences. And we have to deal with them here on earth. So going back to that, that idea of God left Samson, but he was unaware of it. There was a, a Scottish preacher named Alexander McLaren back at the turn of the century. And he wrote some exposition on, on Samson. And he made this comparison between Moses and Samson. And it was uh, of Moses meeting with God, being in God's presence. And when he came down, his face shone so much so that the people were afraid. And Moses was unaware of his appearance. In the same way, Samson, who has fallen away, 
was unaware that God had left him, the presence of God had left him, the power of God had left him. And it's this idea that, have you ever come home and somebody is cooking something with a lot of garlic or, or bacon or, and you walk in and it's just this assault on your sense of smell? But the person that's inside can't really, it doesn't, they don't notice it. Or, or if I've been working at the sale barn and I come home and walk in the door and my wife says, take your clothes off in the garage. <laughs> Why, do I stink? You know, you are unaware of the atmosphere. And it takes somebody coming from outside, from fresh air, to really be able to tell how much the atmosphere that we've come ac become accustomed to really stinks. One of the aspects of bringing in an interim minister, an interim pastor, is that we can get an outside perspective for our church. And that'll be really valuable to us. Someone to be able to say, yes, this is great, or this is obviously wrong. This needs to change. That is healthy. And so this Scottish preacher, he warns us against that condition. Against losing our hold on God without realizing it. And he uses the picture of this great elm tree that was the pride of some town, just gigantic until one storm blew through and knocked it over. And when it was fallen down, everyone could see that it was hollow on the inside. There was nothing there. It looked good on the outside. And so he warns us, is that a picture of your life? Is that a picture of your walk with God? That it looks good on the outside, but on the inside it's empty. Without you realizing it. And he goes on to say, do what is necessary to correct that today. Examine your life. And the best way is to say, what are your, your desires? What are your actions? Show me what you do. 
Not what you say, not what you feel. Show me what you want. Show me what you have done. What are you doing? Conduct reveals character. And pray. The psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. As we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. Spend time in His presence like Moses on the mountain. Allow his face to shine upon you. And by his grace, we can reflect God's glory to the world. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.